Before we begin, this is a podcast about terrorism, which means we do talk about acts of terrorism and extreme violence, including sexual and gender-based violence. So you may find some of the following materials upsetting. Hello, I'm Fatma Ahmed, your host and guide in this series of Taking Apart Terror, the West Africa edition. Together, we'll analyze the realities of violent extremism in West Africa and delve into the local, regional and international efforts and initiatives to prevent and counter violent extremism. In today's episode, we'll explore the question of who do ISWAP say and what do they do? Joining me as we unpack this question are Malik Samuel, the Lake Chad Basin Program Researcher for the Institute for Security Studies Africa, and Ahmed Jamari from the Neem Foundation. So let's get started. I want to ask you both, so what are some of the different acts of violence that ISWAP regularly carry out? Ahmed, do you want to start off the conversation? Thank you, Fatima. Yes, I think it's it's quite interesting some of the trends we've seen over the past few years with ISWAP. There really has been quite an evolution in terms of um, the way they operate, uh, especially at the community level. We've seen really significant optics uh, in attacks, especially uh, attacks where, where you have a significant number of Christian communities. Uh, I mean, most recently, uh, we've seen uh, increased attacks on really innocent people, especially women and children uh, in areas of, of Chibok. We've seen kidnappings. We've heard very gruesome uh, stories by victims, which we have worked with quite actively uh, about rape and, and several different types of um, uh, abuse that happens within these ISWAP camps. Alongside this as well, we've seen uh, quite a lot of um, attacks on uh, military installations, uh, military checkpoints, military facilities and security agencies at large. Uh, And this is, uh, of course, uh, different types of elements that adds up to the experience of the ISWAP attack. And of course, as we have seen over the past uh, few years or so, uh, there has been thousands and thousands of people that have been displaced uh, as a result of these ISWAP attacks. Uh, so the, these are just some, uh, of course, we'll go into much more detail shortly, but these are just some sort of attacks we have seen uh, being carried out by ISWAP. Thank you, Ahmed. And I think one of the uh, most recent uh, prolific one was the one in Kuje, which is one of Nigeria's most secure prisons. How was ISWAP able to carry out this latest attack? Uh, Malik, what are your thoughts? So um, regarding um, Kuje, what our research showed was that that attack was specifically um, meant to free um, detained members, and that operation owed its, um, its success to the collaboration, at least some level of collaboration between ISWAP and um, Ansaru. Well, Ansaru did mm-hmm. not um, contribute fighters for that attack, the attack in terms of uh, the manpower for that attack was supplied entirely by ISWAP. So Ansaru's role in that attack relates to just surveillance because um, Ansaru had the surveillance of um, of Kuje for a long time. In fact, Ansaru had planned ways to free its members, but it didn't have the capacity to you know to do that. So it approached ISWAP if they could collaborate to carry out um, that attack. But ISWAP refused um, the military collaboration, electing only to use um, the information provided by Ansaru. And uh, we learned that the reason why ISWAP refused to allow Ansaru's fighters to join it was simply because they felt Ansaru was not an affiliate of ISIS, 
rather Al-Qaeda. And the condition then was that Ansaru would have to pledge allegiance to ISIS, you know, to be able to join it or to contribute fighters for that attack. So, but I think it was um, too short a time to do that. So it gave ISWAP the information it had, the intelligence, the surveillance that it had carried out on Kuje, and that included how to get to Kuje, which route to follow, so that they could avoid uh, military forces, you know, including the timing, what date was better to carry out such an attack, and including uh, the timing. So most of this um, intelligence, this information was provided by Asaro, but in terms of the manpower, it was entirely carried out by ISWAP. So what we learned also was that ISWAP has a cell in Kogi State, and that cell was um, planted sometimes towards the end of last year after the death of, um, of Shekau. So what happened was that before the attack, so some ISWAP fighters came all the way from the northeast, specifically from uh, the Alagarno Forest and, um, and the Nechad Basin Island around Tumbuma. So fighters came from these places you know, to team up with the cell in Kogi, then to come um, carry out that attack on Kogi. So you mentioned about uh, uh, this collaboration uh, uh, with ISWAP to carry out this particular attack and that a conditionality was to pledge allegiances to Daesh, but that was not possible due to the time that this attack was planned. But um, it would be great for you to elaborate if this is a common in terms of pledging allegiances to Daesh as a conditionality in terms of collaboration amongst some of these fighters. What I know specifically, it's about... Um, the attack on Kuje and what possibly happened. But I don't know about the other cases in other places outside the Chad Basin or in Nigeria specifically. So what I know is only relates to Kuje attack. But then I mentioned that the time was too short. But then what we were seeing um, recently is that there are, there are discussions ongoing between Ansaru and Iswap for a possible um, merger and also discussions between the two Boko Haram factions in Nigeria, that is uh, the Islamic State West Africa province, Israel, and then the Jamaat Al-Islam Leader World Jihad, which is um, just the, 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 the group formerly led by Shekau. So we're seeing, uh, we're hearing of um, discussions um, presently ongoing for a possible collaboration. If that collaboration does happen, we may see situations where attacks, of course, can include fighters either from Ansaru and Israel or from the three groups altogether. Ahmed, coming back to you, you were earlier talking about that we see different types of attacks. It would be great for you to speak of what are some of the key narratives that ISWAP include in their propaganda, specifically when it comes to recruiting. I think in terms of ISWAP narratives, we've seen quite a bit of uh, learning on their own part in terms of how best appeal to younger people. Of course, indications that we've seen is that they've learned quite a lot from the mystics of jazz particularly the former leader of Jas, Abu Bakr Sheikh, who was killed sometime last year. For instance, uh, some of the things that they've learned in trying to appeal to a civilian audience, you must be seen to really want to embrace them as your fellow Muslims, as ISWAP would call it. So some of the narratives we've seen uh, quite recently actually have been very actively engaged around the concept of the idea that Islam is under attack. There needs to be a concerted effort to protect the religion as a whole. I mean, we've seen instances uh, recently, especially around uh, parts of the Northeast in Nigeria, and certainly even areas uh, differ, actually, to some extent, even Bagasola, 
area of Chad where they have really preached some of these um, uh, narratives to call attention of um, especially young Muslims uh, to tell them uh, about some of the gaps uh, within democratic institutions. Uh, we've seen instances where they've um, gone out to communities. In fact, I've had an experience where engaging in a certain community where ISWAP actually had given them letters and in those letters, they, they spoke about the need for the community members to strengthen their support for ISWAP. Uh, they spoke about the need for community members to move away from, from really accepting any support from international organizations. Uh, they spoke about um, uh, the communities not accepting uh, any support from the state government, be it the state government or the federal government. Uh, we've also seen a lot of instances where they really communicate some of the uh, successes or at least perceived successes uh, that they have achieved on the field. Um, of course, we've seen them communicate using uh, the AMAC magazine, as some would call it. Uh, but more traditionally, what we're seeing, particularly in the uh, what I would call the peripheral villages, as well as also some uh, had to reach areas where they have access to in this region, uh, you find them preaching through sermons. Uh, so when they go into villages, uh, they take over these villages and they really uh, preach through sermon. Sometimes uh, we've seen instances where women have been assigned significant roles within the ranks uh, of ISWAP. You know, that that's really interesting in the sense that, I mean, in the past, one of the challenges uh, Boko Haram has, has had, of course, was, was how they can enhance recruitment of women. But here we see ISWAP attempting to do that or have done that in some cases. Um, in other areas, we've also seen them really trying to communicate externally. Uh, so, for instance, uh, whenever you see an impressive um, example that was given not too long ago by Malik uh, in terms of the incident that happened in the Kujie prison, uh, I mean, almost instantly they had put out a video, almost uh, as if to say that, look, here is Abuja and we were able to target Abuja and this is what we have done. Uh, so sometimes even that narrative of, of showing that um, they're able to compete with conventional armies, uh, even though, of course, any person with common sense would, would tell you that this is inaccurate. But just a simple video uh, has a lot of impact in terms of how it captures uh, the attention of audiences. So we've, we've seen a, a range of a multitude of, of narratives that are being pushed out, especially uh, when it comes to domesticating some of their narratives when they speak about how certain Christians across the country have really starved Muslims of the ability to grow. So these are all sentiments that were existing within the countries that they operate in. But what we find is that they use those pre-existing sentiments, whether it's ethnic or religious, to really grow the divide. And by growing the divide, they're able to actually capture the minds of some of these young people, especially uh, given the fact that Boko Haram in the past uh, have really had a more aggressive way of recruitment. Uh, so this is sort of the learning that has happened amongst the operators of the media entity of ISWAP. You spoke about their them managing to recruit women and also their propaganda appealing to young people. Um, could you tell us a bit more about the child recruitment that's done, in particular in the, in the Lake Chad Basin, by the group? Thank you. I think there remains a lot of vagueness in the information around um, as it relates to the recruitment of children. But one thing we do know is that uh, a lot of sources have confirmed that there has been a lot of active recruitment, especially in areas where uh, ISWAP holds way. What you find is um, children are almost forced to actually participate. Uh, in some cases, actually, you find, uh, of course, for lack of 
really understanding the dangers. You find children really wanting to engage with these groups that they see as heroes. Of course, as I said, in most cases, you find that this is as a result of the lack of exposure within those communities. I mean, in the past, we've seen instances where groups such as Boko Haram have recruited children in numbers. I mean, the downside of it is whether they recruit or not. One thing that we know for sure is that a lot of children have died within the ranks of ISWAP. And that's not justified in any way. I mean, we've seen in the past, we heard about the 200 children that starved to death in the forest as a result of their engagement with Boko Haram. And as you know, a lot of the commanders uh, that ended up forming the ranks of ISWAP are actually from, from Boko Haram. So they, they, really the shift in, in, the, in the way they embolden their, their military ranks hasn't really changed significantly especially when it comes to use of really vulnerable children and women for acts of suicide bombings. Now, Malik, we've heard from Ahmed in terms of uh, some of the propaganda and the narratives that are being deployed by ISWAP. Uh, and you've written also extensively about their, you know, attempted expansions across the Lake Chad Basin and how they're also spreading its propaganda. Um, it would be great to hear your thoughts around, you know, how some of ISWAP's claim or propaganda tie into the official uh, Daesh propaganda and how it also ties to their uh, expansion across the Lake Chad Basin. So um, thanks. Uh, thank you. Um, but just to add to what um, Ahmed said, uh, regarding um, children, uh, the recruitment of, um, of children. This is, um, ISWAP sees children, especially young boys, as um, the future, especially its fighting force. And he mentioned the death of um, children in the forest. If I, if I understand correctly, that would be under Shekau, when Shekau was alive about um, 10 years ago, um, eight or, or so years ago, when a lot of children died the Daru Koral system, which is a system put in place to radicalize young boys. Now, you realize that in early this year, Israel released a video, the empowerment video, showing these young boys uh, being well taken care of, undergoing training, exercise, you know, and all that. So that is to show that ISWAP is different from jazz to show that if these boys agreed to join, they would be well taken care of, they would be well fed, you know, well clothed, are provided with most of the things they need. So all these are strategies that are meant to attract these young boys. But of course, uh, like Ahmed mentioned as well, the risk far outweigh whatever benefit ISWAP puts out there for the children, which of course it doesn't tell the children in terms of family risk. Because during this radicalization, they are introduced to the battlefield. And they start gradually by becoming cheerleaders, where young boys are taken to the battlefield behind to, uh, to do what they call kabara, you know, to shout, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, you know, to, uh, to motivate the fighters. And some of them are also expected to help the fighters carry some of their weapons, especially the, the ammunition, and also help in retrieving the corpses of dead, of the corpses of fighters. You know, so these are all a part of the strategy that ISWAP uses in carrying out and recruitment. Then you talk about um, the extension and how this ties into Daesh and um, strategy. One thing that is clear is that ISWAP has a very, very active media unit. And that media unit is always in touch uh, when necessary, with uh, the media unit of ISIS. The ISWAP media unit is headed by the, the, the son of the late, uh, the late founder, Mohammed Yusuf. So his son heads that, um, that media unit. So that tells how important it is. And they have 
reporters, you know, and that is how they are able to get a lot of these um, uh, media materials and videos, pictures, and all that, that they are able to put information out immediately and attack happens. In fact, let me even add that the operation in Sambisa Forest that resulted in the death of Shekau, that operation was sanctioned by ISIS. ISIS told Israel that, look, if you want to expand beyond the Lake Chad Islands, which is very far from the capital of Bornose, which is Mediburi, you need to be close to the capital in order to be able to carry out attacks close to this capital. To do this, you need to get Sambisa as a base. And to take, to take Sambisa, you first have to take out the leader, which was uh, Abu Bakr Shekau. So that gave Israel the, the mandate you know, to carry out the attack on Sambisa and eventually kill Abu Bakr Shekau. Ahmed, do you want to come in and compliment about some of your thoughts around how ISAP's propaganda also maybe differ from Daesh's one? But I think the best example I, I give people is uh, I've had the opportunity to really listen to and manage a lot of radio programs, both recently and as well in the past in the Northeast. And what we started hearing actually from some of the callers is they're able to differentiate between incidents uh, that are carried out by JAS or Boko Haram, as they would call it locally, and ISRA. Uh, you had actually callers saying, uh, okay, look, we heard about this thing. This this is Boko Haram that committed this attack. What Jas has done, and I think Malik summed it up quite quite well, actually, is to be able to really through his media um, present itself as as really a more legitimate alternative to Boko Haram, Jas, and that's essentially the main focus of, of some of the messaging they push out. And if you notice, even when they uh, talk about attacks that they have committed against, uh, whether it's members of the military or other security services across the LCB, uh, they always make reference that when they support for the dawla of Islam, they keep making reference to, to the people that they're doing it for. Uh, and with that, sometimes you find that um, a lot of the, the community members uh, now move away from seeing them as a threat to seeing them as a as an active group that's operating in the region as the whole. This is a lot of the challenges we're seeing, especially with uh, whether it's governments or agencies trying to counter the narratives. No, thank you. Um, those are fascinating insights, especially how they try and win the community over. Do you both have any thoughts around, we've talked about some of their propaganda, their strategy, and also ways that uh, tactics of, you know, getting the community on. Before we wrap up today, do you have anything that you want to speak of in the final words around, you know, preventative measures or things that we can take away from this episode um, to take forward in terms of preventing, whether it's from their propaganda, the attacks or the strategies, it would be great to hear your final thoughts on it. You know, a lot of times you hear, I mean, statements such as uh, it's not rocket science, but sometimes it's actually the situation we find ourselves in is actually quite complex. I mean, we live in a, the context of the conflict we're talking about now is different from the context of the conflict we're talking about two years ago. And I'll give you an example. When you look at parts of uh, Chad, uh, parts of Niger, uh, whether it's Bosu, uh, Tilleberry, or Defa, or, or even the northwest region of Nigeria, where, where ISWAP has expanded to, as well as also to some extent the north central. And I think, Ahmed, um, Malik, do you want to share any final reflections from your side? Um, yeah, uh, I'd like to um, focus mainly on the propaganda, ISWAP um, propaganda. I think um, ISWAP 
deploys that um, successfully to show or to try to convince um, people about its um, potential and about its strength. But the truth is that a lot of things are happening behind the scene that Biswap does not want people to know. So I think the focus also should be on countering this um, uh, this propaganda. Israel understands the significance, the importance of information, and that is why it engages in this propaganda. For instance, the video released earlier this year about children, the empowerment, the recruitment video, and all that. But behind the scene, you, you speak to a lot of former child um, recruits. They tell you, you know, the suffering, the abuse. Ahmad has talked about some of the abuses happening in communities, even communities where Israel tends to show that it cares for the people, but this is not entirely true. So what I think stakeholders should focus on should also be to counter this narrative that, uh, you know, that Israel puts out. You know, the, we've seen attacks by Israel on communities. But Israel comes out to tell you they don't, uh, it doesn't attack civilians, especially Muslim civilians. But there have been um, several incidents of Israel fighters raiding communities, even Muslim communities, and attacking civilians. So focus should be on messaging, you know, that tend to counter this narrative. So by exposing and challenging some of their um, Islam's propaganda is also a way for us to um, to undermine the group as well. Well, thank you, Malik and Ahmed, for helping uh, guide us through the, today's discussion. Your insights were informative uh, and really deeply insightful. So that's it for today's episode. In the next episode, we'll be asking, what roles do women play in supporting and defeating terrorism? Please follow or subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Fatma Ahmed. Until next time, goodbye.